welcome to another episode of The Wall Behind and Beyond. My name is Philip. I am your host. Today we have a guest who is not only an advocate for those impacted by the criminal justice system, but also one who uses his voice to make an impact. And in his work, he campaigns to abolish death by incarceration. He is a frequent speaker at colleges and universities, criminal and social justice conferences, speaking on topics that lend support to carceral conditions and reform. And you may recall that he appeared in the film Just Mercy, which was not only a great film, but a powerful book that I have in my own personal book collection. Welcome our colleague, David Garlock, to the show. Thank you for being here, and how are you, friend? Hey, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I've loved just connecting with you and just seeing everything that you're doing from the inside. Uh, really, when I was in, there really wasn't as much advocacy being done from the inside. So it's just amazing to, to see that. And I'm doing well, you know. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I decided, you know, in order to be a part of the change, you got to be in the conversation first. Um, and also, if we want more people involved, and then we have to bring awareness uh, to the countless individuals who may not be impacted by uh, the criminal justice system. Therefore, don't feel that they have a role to play in it. But we all do as a community. And so that's why I wanted to get involved. And I'm glad that you're here because you've been doing some big things and making a lot of noise in all the right places, uh, trying to bring about justice and some equality when it comes to um, the conditions surrounding uh, incarceration in this country. So we can get right to it because I've got some questions for you. Can you tell the listeners where you're from and a little bit about your background? So uh, where I'm from, I actually live in Pennsylvania now, but uh, I'm from Florida, South Carolina, Washington, California, Nevada, Louisiana, Alabama, and now Pennsylvania. So um, <laughs> I actually grew up in Washington, and so that's really where I consider home. Um but now I've lived in Pennsylvania since 2014. So this is my second home, and uh, it's where my wife and my 22-month-old son live. And just a little background about me is um, my brother and I were sexually, physically abused for eight years. We made the irrational decision to take the gentleman's life. We felt that was the only way out of it. Um, I was incarcerated at 20 years old, given a 25-year sentence um, in that time. I had this uh, amazing interaction with this detective after I confessed, and he told me I needed to seek God, and that really changed the whole trajectory of my life, you know, and I told myself I was going to do the time instead of letting the time do me, and I served 13 and a half years, you know, during that time, I got a GED, I got a drafting trade, a master's of theology through an unaccredited school, and everything I was doing was to better myself and improve myself. In 2008, Brian Stevenson and Equal Justice Initiative started working with my brother and me. They couldn't do anything as far as our case, but they wanted to help us with parole. So both my brother and I were able to make parole, and we've both been out over 10 years. I'm the one that's actually got involved with criminal justice reform work. And just recently, uh, or actually the past five years, I've done a lot of public speaking, you know, and so right now, that's really my full-time job. So that's a, a quick version of where I am and who I am. Hey, that's amazing. And I read up a lot about you on that bio, and I saw, you know, what you've been doing um, over the years. And you spent your time in the right way, and I'm so glad that you were able to get out, both you and your brother. And sometimes the system uh, doesn't work in a way that it should where we can get out 
where we have nothing to uh, back up or no more involvement with the system. But even if you can get out on parole, to get out again and have another opportunity to be amongst your your family um, and your friends and your community is always great. So I'm so glad that you were able to do that, and now you are also um, taking part in the struggle uh, to bring about these uh, meaningful changes. I see um, that in your resume involves advocacy and rehistory, uh, which are two areas that are close to my own heart. What inspires you to get involved in this kind of work uh, beyond your story? Because I know your story is part of the main reason. Well, I mean, one of the main reasons is being a client of Brian Stevenson, and you're always hearing you're not as bad as the worst thing you've ever done. You hear other um, quotes he always talks about where it says the criminal system will treat you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. And so just things like that. And when I, nine months after I got out of prison, I transferred my parole from Alabama to Pennsylvania to attend school. When I went into school, I was going to major in social work and I wanted to open up a, a home for kids and teens to get them off the streets. But God had other plans. And so I actually majored in uh, urban studies focusing on criminal justice and social welfare. And my first job when I graduated college was I became the program director of a Christian reentry home that primarily worked with people who had committed sexual offenses. And so this is the thing that really blows everybody's mind because here I am, I'm somebody who was sexually abused for eight years as a child. And now I'm working with these men, you know, and advocating for them. And it goes back to what Brian says. You're not as bad as the worst thing you've ever done. And I never look at these men as a sex offender. I would look at them as a person who's been convicted of a sexual offense. And it's, it's, it was all about grace. It's about mercy. It's about forgiveness, you know, and I went through equal justice initiatives, ranger program. And so I, I have both lenses as far as reenter, as far as somebody that has had to reenter, but also somebody who has that um, educational background in helping other men uh, reenter. And so I just love being able to use both experiences to speak to re uh, folks that are running reenter programs, uh, speaking to um, corrections officers and stuff like that, because right now our system does it so bad where we have to begin reentry on day one, not three months before somebody gets out of prison. And I often say that myself, you know, it starts the first day you come to prison. And what you said, that saying is powerful, and um, the credit just belongs to Brian. It's not as bad as your, the worst thing you ever did. And that's why in my mentor work, I try to tell people, why are we looking at people by their charges why are we treating them as if what they did is 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 worse than what we did? Like anybody who's in prison for what they say, uh, breaking the law or doing criminal activity, um, where is it that this mentality comes from that, um, oh, your charge is better? You know, by society standards, you all looked at the same. And so who are we after the judge has made their, laid their gavel to come back now and retry another man for his actions. That's something that he has to work out between himself and get better with, um, not for us. So I'm trying to teach that to the youth um, that stop trying to uh, uh, isolate and put yourself in a social uh, status um, according to your charges if it's something to be proud of. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, I mean, that's what's funny about 
in prison, there's this hierarchy where somebody that's committed murder is on the high, they're the high person on the totem pole. And the, the person that is convicted of a sexual offense is a low man on the totem pole. But once somebody gets out of prison, that person that's committed murder that is used to being that high person on the totem pole is now right above somebody that's been convicted of a sexual offense in the eyes of society. And so, I mean, we can't judge anybody and allow us to think that we're better than somebody because of whatever offense we committed. Most definitely. I like that. I appreciate it. Uh, you spoke about abolishing death by incarceration. Why do you believe that we as a civilized nation and a leader in the world still imprison people to life sentences, oftentimes without parole, when almost no other country in the world still does this? I think it really goes to the thought process of incapacitation. And when you think about incapacitation, what the definition means is just to lock somebody up to make society safe, you know. And how does that make society safer? You know, um, we we have to realize that there is this thought process in criminal justice. Uh, one of the theories is life course theory. And it talks about early onset offending. And it, it says that somebody who offends at an early age, they're going to have some type of ex a life experience that's going to change their trajectory. And so they're going to never commit an offense again. Both my brother and I, when the murder happened, I was 19. My brother was 22. Uh, we've both been out over, I've been out almost 10 years. My brother's been out 13 years. We both have received pardon. We have never committed another offense again. And so this is a perfect example of this early onset offending. But we also have to realize the amount of trauma that somebody's experienced that has led to their addiction and also them committing offenses. This is things that society doesn't think about and really doesn't know about. There's all this conversation about the school to prison pipeline, but there's a pipeline that we really need to have a conversation about, which is the, the trauma to prison pipeline. Uh, when my colleague Taylor Novell does a lot of talking about this uh, down in the D.C. area, there's a lot of other scholars, you know, and this is what we need to do. We need to have this conversation because that's where it starts from. For sure. Um, and everything you said, I echo, you cannot lock up your way out of societal issues. If you lock up a million people, the conditions in our, in our society of uh, such as trauma and mental health and all kinds of other things, abuses um, that contribute to people who find themselves broken and oftentimes resort to drugs or um, activities that will lead to incarceration. If you locked up a million men and didn't let them up or a million women and didn't let them out, there's still going to be uh, social conditions which still perpetuate the same offenses that take place. So what we need to do is help treat and, and make people heal uh, more so than just lock them up and throw away the key because that doesn't solve the society's problem. Yeah, and I think we need to get where the sentencing project is at, where they want to cap all sentences at 20 years, you know, and um, I think that's really where we need to get. We need to get rid of the death penalty, life without parole, life sentences, virtual life sentences, just cap everything at 20 years. Most definitely. Like I said, we spoke to some guys over in Norway who've been studying um, their system uh, versus ours. And they talked about how if you are not locking someone up just to punish, because the loss of your liberty is to punish, then you can lock them up for years and years on end, and now it's just punishment. You're not trying to uh, rectify what happened. You're not trying to uh, bring about, you know, restorative justice. So 
that is uh, something that we need to come to terms with in our country. Yeah, I mean, we definitely need to get rid of our punitive justice system and get to restorative and transformative, which is really about healing for everybody that's involved with the system, not just punishing the person that's caused the harm. Most of us um, know someone who's incarcerated, whether we've ever been incarcerated or not. Like, every one of you know, 10 people know somebody incarcerated. So my next question, why do we make our incarcerated community a throwaway population? Why do we treat them as second-class citizens and outcasts? No matter what they've done, uh, they remain a part of our society and have just as much right to it once they return to it. I think a lot of it, I mean, it's two things. One, uh, Brian Stevenson always talks about it, where he says slavery hasn't gotten, uh, didn't even, uh, get rid of. It has just evolved into mass incarceration, you know, and there, there's a lot of states, you know, where somebody that's, that's been incarcerated when they come out, they're still looked at as like three fifths of a citizen because in Alabama, you can't vote until you get a pardon, you know, um, and so really it's about making people inferior and just looking down on them, you know, and it's just like we have this scarlet F going on our, our shirts and our clothing, you know, and everything that we have to do, we have to fill out this box. Have you ever been convicted of a felon? So what society wants to do is continue to label us by the worst thing we've done. And just they, they have this mindset that we cannot change, that this is who we are. You know, that's one thing. We, we have this violent versus nonviolent dichotomy, you know, and society's like, yeah, let's release all the nonviolent people. This can be great. And it's like, okay, people have committed sexual offenses, people who have committed murder, they have the lowest rates of reoffending. So do you want to continue to let people out who are going to? I was just chuckling at what you were saying. The nonviolent people is the ones they only promote to let free. And they keep coming back because they get slapped on the wrist. Uh, exactly. But those people have been down. Those people who have served um, double-digit numbers, they rarely come back to prison. You know what I mean? So they've learned their lesson or they become better while they were inside. Yeah, and I mean, another thing, too, is like in the 13 and a half years I served, my mom, my dad, my grandma, my sister all passed away. You know, when you're serving these lengthy sentences, life happens without you. And you're missing out on so much. If you're only gone for a year or two years, you're really not missing out on that. And so it doesn't have the same meaning and you're not losing yes. as much. Absolutely. You right on you hit that right on the nose, man. I lost my whole family or a large amount of it while I was in. The only family that's left are those who weren't born uh when I was even out. Um mm. so that's tragic on many different fronts for both the kids um and the family as well as those incarcerated. Uh, speaking of Alabama, man, I've been hearing a lot of things, man, about what's going on down here in the system. Uh, can you speak on that, man, and tell us a little bit about that? Because I know you know, because I know you've been involved um, trying to help out down there. Yeah, I mean, it. I was really surprised that they were able to come together, all the institutions, all 17 institutions, when the prison strike started at the end of September, everybody came together. And it just ended, uh, I think, the end of last week. And five institutions were still strong and standing uh, uh, up for their rights, you know. And a lot of people think it's just about the labor issues. You know, Alabama is one of only a couple states that don't pay people for regular labor. You know, in Pennsylvania, if you have a dorm cleaning job, you're making 18 cents an hour. That same job in Alabama, you don't make anything. So what happens there is um, 
we have to realize that's one thing. But one of the other main things that this strike was about was the parole and pardon boards, which has gotten so pitiful since Mr. Spencer was arrested in 2019. It was a gentleman who was released on parole and was, is charged with three murders. And once that happened, the, the governor fired the parole board and brought in this pitiful parole board that they have now. And um, some of the other things that are being fought for are the habitual offender law and then also the, the juvenile lifers, them being eligible for parole. After we have 60 seconds remaining. I'll pick it up when I come back on the other side. Hold that thought. The brother still got more force on it when we come back. Thank you. Thank you all for listening, subscribing, and sharing my podcast. Here are three ways to help me today. Consider donating if you can to my GoFundMe for my freedom efforts. You can find that by typing in Incarcerated Lives Matter, Philip Alvin Jones on GoFundMe. Subscribe today to my YouTube channel, The Wall Behind and Beyond. Comment and share. We are on our journey to a 1,000 subscribers. We can do this. Visit GrantParoleToPhillip.com. It's a one-stop shop that has my direct contact info and awesome social media sites. Please get in touch with us if you'd like to help in any way with Team Philip. Thank you, and keep listening to The Wall, Behind and Beyond. Oh, uh, okay. Well, we're going to pick right back up where we left off. The brother was speaking and giving a, uh, a statement about what's going on in that Alabama situation and some more commentary. And so when we think about it, you know, Governor Kay Ivey has made all these comments about that they can't do anything, you know, and some of the things that they were asking for are definitely um, things that the legislator has to pass, you know, um, as far as the habitual offender laws, the, the juvenile life without parole folks being eligible for parole after 30 years. But the thing that doesn't have to have le legislative change is getting a new parole board in there. Um, I have seen how horrible this parole board is in person because they also are the pardon board. So I went for my pardon last year and this person that's the chair of the parole pardon board is horrible. She was trying to make me, she in essence tried me again for an offense that happened 23 years ago where I'm just trying to get this pardon. And um, I, I listened to three other parole hearings at, during this time. One gentleman was a 26 year old had six months to live because he had different medical con issues and they set him off two years. I mean, where is the humanity? Where is the, the, the grace in that, you know? And Alabama is in the Bible belt and all of the, the politicians, all of the leaders are always talking about their faith and grace and this, but they're not showing any towards those men and women that are incarcerated in the Alabama Department of Corrections. That's a powerful statement, and um, it really, really makes me wonder, you know, what is the objective? What is the penological objective? Because um, why do a man need to set off for two years um, if he is in a situation where he doesn't even have that left or he is in a dire um, health condition and he won't probably won't make it that long? These are the things that you would, you would think that they would factor in, especially in light of what's going on with the pandemic and everything else. So I'm glad that you... Uh, clarify some of that. A lot of the uh, parole systems um, just become independent um, in terms of community uh, uh, supervision um, because it's not. Then we just bring in the people who are so-called tough on crime, um, and they just won't feel uh, any any uh, incentive to set people free. Well, I think we. I think every 
every parole board needs to be like Rhode Island. Rhode Island right now has somebody that's formerly incarcerated on their parole board. I mean, if you look at the parole board of Alabama, it's a former prosecutor, it's a former law enforcement officer, and a former parole officer. So you already <laughs> you already know what you're going to get going in front of them. And just in 2019, 2018, 2019, they were granting paroles at 50 to 60 percent. Right now, it's between 7 and 10%. And, and this is what's causing these individuals to, to be so frustrated in Alabama right now because you have individuals at work release have been at work release for 10 years and they have been rehabilitated, but the parole board's setting them off five years. It's like, that does not make sense. These individuals are in the community every day, not committing new offenses, working, paying taxes, but you're telling them that they have to spend another five years in prison. It makes no sense. Hey, that is remarkable that you say that because that's how the system gets to be in Maryland, uh, pre-1994 uh, crime field. You, will, you could make it all the way to work release, really, going out to society every day, working, earning a living, taking care of your family. And, and you will be most likely to make parole uh, once you went up because they see that you're already out there functioning uh, as a productive member of society. But it sounds like down in Alabama, you could be in work release and still get a set off for five years. Like, what more do you have to show <laughs> to them in order for them to think that you are uh, release ready? You know what I mean? And that's the thing. I mean, there's nothing else we can show them. I mean, these individuals have jackets full of certificates, full of classes they, they've done, everything that, that the Department of Corrections has told them to do to show that they have been rehabilitated, they've done and the the parole board doesn't want to look at it there uh, and then the victims advocate group is so horrible down there too um there can be individuals who have no protests at all none of the none of their victims are there but the victims advocate group is there protesting everybody they actually protested my pardon which we thought was so crazy you know because of what I've been able to achieve in the nine years I've been out. And so it was just so baffling that they were there protesting my pardon. You know, I always say this, too, to cap it off. Parole is not freedom, first of all. You're just, you're in custody in society. So why is it so hard for us not to grant parole? Like, we're not free. We still have to report. We still have to be supervised. We still have to, you know, have DOC uh, overseeing us. And so if they would look at it in terms of you're not, I'm not free yet. I'm just in society completing the rest of my time. If they would just simply look at it that way, um, I think because they believe, oh, we're, put, we're setting someone free. Or you're not setting someone free. They're not free. You know, they're still accountable to you. So I think that, that we need to start shaping the argument kind of differently uh, when we go and we talk at these conferences and stuff about what is it that you're afraid of? What is it that you think that you're accomplishing? Rather than, uh, you know, just simply keeping someone behind bars. Yeah, and that's one thing with the work that we've been doing here in Pennsylvania around the life without parole um, sentences. You know, that's what we are always telling the, the legislators is that, you know, just because you put somebody out on parole, it doesn't mean that they're free. You know, a lot of these individuals could potentially be on parole for the rest of their life or until they get a pardon commutation. And that's the thing, you know, uh, when these individuals get off, you know, they're going to have to, to see their parole officer once, once a month, you know, or more depending on how the parole board wants to put their, their restrictions, you know. Um, but that's the thing, you know, I was on parole for nine years 
the first year, year and a half, I was seeing my PO every every month, you know. But then I got to one of the lighter restrictions where I only saw him four times a year. And in the last two years, three years before my pardon, I was only seeing him once a year because they saw what I was about. You know, I wasn't running the streets. I wasn't, uh, I didn't have to be chased around Philadelphia in the drug scene, stuff like that. But my PO knew I was about going to college, about my family, about work, taking care of my business, you know? And that's one thing that's so amazing when you have parole officers like that who see what you are about and will give you that space. That's dope. That's dope. And I agree with you on hundred. Um, tell our listeners about Just Leadership USA. Yeah, so Just Leadership USA is one of uh, the first uh, organizations that was created to train men and women who are advocates. Um, it was started by Glenn E. Morton, who's also formerly incarcerated. Uh, one of his famous quotes, which he said and is why Just Leadership came about was those that are closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but lack the resources. And that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to um, help men and, men and women and individuals who are in this fight to give them the skills to be able to not only be invited to be at the table, but to be at the head of the table and to get the finances, to get the money that uh, these nonprofits are giving out so they can help other individuals that are coming home, you know, and that's what's so important, you know, it's so powerful when we have this collective leadership, when we're standing together and then we help other people to get on our shoulders and then help people to get on their shoulders and how this whole movement is about us all coming together and no one person saying, Oh, I'm bigger and better than you. It's just about coming together and we have the same common goal, you know, and their goal right now is half by 2030, you know, and there's other organizations who have really le- linked onto that and said, yes, that's what we want to do. We want the, the prison population to be half by 2030. And so um, it's still going on, you know, every year there's about 30, between 20 to 30 leaders going through the program and getting all these amazing skills to go back into their community and to help other men and women and individuals to come home and to thrive. Hey, that's powerful. And I always say, you know, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Uh, you must uh, prepare yourself um, and you must understand the field that you're fighting on if you ever hope to win. Um, and so uh, I'm glad um, that that's going down. And I always want to take part um, in something like that because the way I analyze things is this. If you don't know your enemy or if you don't know who you're up against, your adversary, uh, then you probably won't have any hopes of banquets uh, um, with them. And I mean that to say, a lot of times we go into these rooms and we talk about these topics of the lawmakers and lawyers and all kinds of, you know, educated people. Um, and so if your argument, if they can figure out any kind of way to, you know, turn your argument around, then you will lose that debate. Uh, therefore, changes won't be made. Um, and so policy is driven by, you know, someone who can concretely um, show uh, the benefit behind why action needs to take place. You know, I started studying and practice on that myself. I'd say one other thing, too, is not only that, but having people that are great storytellers. Um, because I've seen that myself uh, with a, a representative here in Pennsylvania and a senator that I actually had 
uh, breakfast with on my birthday on October 5th. And these were two senators that are a senator and representative. When they got into politics, they had no idea or thoughts or wanted to touch criminal justice reform. But because of stories, because of hearing those that, uh, individuals that are incarcerated, it touched them, you know, and both now are involved with criminal justice reform. The senator, uh, when he ends his term later this month, he's starting a criminal justice reform organization. So that's something that you really never hear of a politician after successfully being in the Senate for 10 years, starting a criminal justice organization. So it's definitely amazing the impact that we can have on these legislators when we share our story and come in with the data too. For sure. What is uh, the new person ministry's reentry program philosophy? Uh, because you hear about so many reentry programs, what do you guys have in place there? So really, new person ministries, the, the main philosophy there was about Second Corinthians 5.17, which says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Behold, old things have passed away, all things have become new. And so it's really more about a, a relationship with God and really looking at yourself, not as what you've done, but as who God says you are now, you know. And when I got into this work, you know, I working with that population, I had that role for three years. And I actually got the chance to live out restorative justice every day because a lot of these men, as I said, committed a sexual offense. And so most of them would never be able to have contact with their victims. So I was able to be a victim by proxy and I was able to help them go through this healing process. And a lot of times they were able to forgive themselves. So really the the model that we had there really wasn't a 12 step program or anything like that. It was more about personal introspection, a relationship with God, and just being able to do case management, you know, helping um, create relationships with employers that will hire this population because this is a population that has the hardest time getting employment because of the, the stigma and the labels on people who have committed se a sexual offense, you know, and the thought process that somebody has is like when you say the term sex offender, you're automatically thinking that it's somebody that's molested a child. But that's not the case. You know, you have so many different people on the registry and not all of them have molested a child. So it's important for people to be educated about this population. Uh, speaking of that, um, in your bio, it says that you love educating the next generation of criminal justice professionals on rehabilitation and advocacy work. Um, I think this is the most important work still left to do. So how do you reach those who aspire to do this work? Well, I, I go into to universities, you know, I go in to criminal justice classes. I go, uh, I'm able to have lunch with the professors where they can pick my brain and I'm able to go into different conferences and share my story, you know, and help educate. And one, one of the things I love to do is talk about the fact that there's some people who believe in criminal justice reform, except for people who have committed murder and people who have committed a sexual offense, you know. So I use my story and the work that I've done to help change that narrative, you know, because when I'm advocating for people who have committed a sexual offense, no one can tell me like, no, but you can't do this. It's like, oh, wait, you were actually a victim and now you're at. So it gives me a different 
different space, you know, a, a different platform. And I, I consider myself an unlikely advocate when it's about this population. And then um, one thing I always love to do is when I go into a university, I'll ask the folks if they don't know what I went to prison for. I'm like, I'm formally incarcerated. What do you want? What do you think I went to prison for? Ninety percent of the people are going to say fraud because. Here I am, this white dude that's well-dressed, have my earrings, my, my, my wedding band, my Chelsea boots. And so they automatically think I'm a white-collar criminal because that is their stereotype that they have. And so it's an amazing opportunity to, to change those stereotypes and to, to change the narrative and allow people to see that anybody can go to prison for any type of offense. Yes, that's true. And uh, I'm glad that you do that. I, I also go around and speak for my consultation uh, business. And I talk to uh, college students also. And they often ask me questions like, well, don't you think that there's certain crimes that people have to go in prison for? And I say, I believe in accountability. Uh, I believe that people must, you know, uh, take responsibility. And I believe that we must treat people in order so that they can right their wrongs and give them the opportunity. But children, that's what we mainly talk about. Children should be intervened in before they actually uh, commit a crime because at that, at that point, it's too late. And that's, that's really where we have to get to. You know, we, we have to take the money that is being spent on the registry. We have to take the money that's being spent on um, all of our building new prisons, stuff like that. And we need to, to pour that money into the community. Um, I think one of the main things that we have to do is we have to get to a place where we're trauma informed care, you know, where we're focusing on children, we're focusing on young adults and just having conversations with them and finding out what type of trauma they've experienced and help them heal. Because it's like that saying says, hurt people hurt people. But where we take it next is, when somebody's helped, then they're able to help somebody else. And when they're healed, they're able to heal somebody else, you know. And that's why I uh, one of the other reasons I love to do about sharing my story is just about every time I share, somebody comes up and tells me about their own journey as far as being sexually abused, you know. And I tell them, I'm like, you're the reason that I'm here. Forget the other hundreds of people here. You are the reason I'm here. And it's awesome to to help them on their journey. No question. And I agree, and I like helping, and I like informing, and I like bringing, raising awareness. That's my thing. Uh, what was it like to have a role in the movie Just Mercy, and how did that change your criminal justice framework? I mean, it was an amazing opportunity. So I got a call in 2018 from Brian, and he's like, hey, do you want to be in a movie? And I'm like, I'm thinking, is that a question you have to ask somebody? Um, and <laughs> so... We went down there in 2018, filmed. When we got there, you know, Brian told us that there were four actors who were supposed to play these four incarcerated roles, but he wanted four of his clients to play these roles instead of four actors, which when you know Brian Stevenson, this is him changing the narrative. And then yes. another amazing thing about it we was... We have 60 seconds remaining. Okay. Uh, we'll pick up on the other side, you know. The brothers in the middle are telling us something exciting about his role in the movie, and we definitely want to hear that. We'll be right back. Thank you all for listening, subscribing, and sharing my podcast. Here are three ways to help me today. Consider donating if you can. 
to my GoFundMe for my freedom efforts. You can find that by typing in Incarcerated Lives Matter, Philip Alvin Jones on GoFundMe. Subscribe today to my YouTube channel, The Wall Behind and Beyond. Comment and share. We are on our journey to a thousand subscribers. We can do this. Visit GrantParoleToPhilip.com. It's a one-stop shop that has my direct contact info and awesome social media sites. Please get in touch with us if you'd like to help in any way with Team Philip. Thank you, and keep listening to The Wall, Behind and Beyond. All right, my brother, go ahead and finish what you were saying. Yeah, so we get down there, we're on the set. We we actually watched the, the scene where Michael B. Jordan and uh, Rob Morgan, who played Herbert Richardson, were talking with their first interaction in the prison. And then we go on the set, and we were expecting to get, like, a script to look at lines or whatever. And they're like, no, you don't have any scripted lines. So each one of us um, shared our story. So there, we shared our story for 18 to 20 minutes. And so the lines that we have in the movie are parts of our own story, which um, just added a whole nother dimension to it and goes to showing uh, about how Brian is always about changing the narrative. And to, to think about it too is, I'm the only one of the four clients that served time in Alabama prison. So I'm the only one who had a little feeling when I put on this Alabama Department of Corrections jumpsuit again. And so that was kind of surreal. And what was funny is like the the um, jumpsuit they gave us had like a zipper on it. I'm like, hey, this isn't how the real jumpsuits are. They're like, oh, it'll be okay. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you had a real personal reference, and you was like, nah, we're going to do it. Let's do it real. <laughs> I want everything I supposed to be. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Uh, finally, if someone wants to follow you and benefit from your work, how can they get a hold of you? So on Facebook and Twitter, you can just find me at David Lee Garlock, G-A-R-L-O-C-K. Um, if you want to send me an email, you can email me at dgarlock. N as in Nancy, P as in Paul, M as in Mary at gmail.com. And if you guys ever want me to come speak, it's dgarlockspeaker at gmail.com. Thank you so much for stopping by. I appreciate the work you're doing, man. Continue, uh, man. And hopefully I can join you soon because uh, there's so much left to do uh, and so little time to do it in. And uh, thank you again, man, for coming through any time, man. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be on here. Continue to, to use your voice and the advocacy and to do these amazing podcasts, you know, and um, it's incredible the way that you're able to use your voice and to help elevate the other voices of those that are incarcerated. For sure, man. I'm trying to make a change one step at a time for my sanity. And I know, you know, so many others doing so many great things and making so many sacrifices. But whatever I can do, I always sign up. And I always show up. So uh, have a great day. You know what I'm saying, man? And we're going to connect and we're going to talk soon, man. Stay up. Absolutely. Take care, brother. As always, I want to give a special thanks to our listeners for your continued support of The Wall Behind and Beyond. And if you haven't already, I ask that you go and subscribe to our YouTube channel at The Wall Behind and Beyond. We want to be able to notify you every week when a new episode drops so you get exclusive access. Also, share the episode that you like with friends and post our links on your socials. You guys are the show, and as we grow, we will bring you more quality content. Remember, I am because we are. 
If you want to get a hold of me direct, I can be reached via email at www.jpay.com, 881-507, Washington State. Take care, everyone, and be well.